Excited to have you here today. Before I get started, let me just say, uh, I know you've already heard several things that are going on uh, here at Journey. And in a couple of weeks, we have a new Wednesday night ministry that it's, it's kind of an old Wednesday night ministry that we're bringing back. Uh, it's called Kids Time, and it meets on Wednesday nights, um, I believe from 6.30 to 8. Is that, is that correct? Someone in the know? No one in the know in here? Okay. Yes. 6.30 to 8. And this is going to be for second through fifth graders, I believe. Um, they're going through a period uh, or a study that's about heroes of Scripture. So every week they're going to study a different hero in Scripture. In addition, they're going to be learning just some basic Bible information, basic Bible facts, also how to find places in Scripture, and uh, just an overarching opportunity for them to not only study some specific stories, but also to develop their skills in studying, period. That's going to be starting not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday night. Uh, and we need about three more helpers that would be willing to commit to once a month to helping in that through the school year. So if you would be interested in doing that and be willing, if you would go see Deidre or you can see really anybody on the, the uh, kids' ministry leadership team, but uh, Deidre may be the easy one to spot and to go talk to. But we'd love for you to be a part of that, and we'd love for you to bring your kids to be a part of that as well. All right, we're going to be continuing. Today is actually our last week in the book of Philippians. We've been so far going through a section of each chapter um, for the last eight weeks. And our goal has not just been to cover Philippians. Philippians is a great book. It's a lot of fun to study. It's a very encouraging book. It's Paul's most encouraging letter to any church for a church that got it. But what we've also wanted to do is give you some tools that you can get more out of your own personal Bible study. And the truth is, is a lot of times we just kind of read over, we gloss over certain places in Scripture, and we don't actually pull out of it what God's wanting to speak to us. A lot of Christians will rely on their time at church or at Bible studies in order to gain scriptural information or to see what God wants to do within their lives. And the truth is that you'll learn your greatest lessons from scripture in your own personal study, not in something that someone else has shared about their personal study. So what we hope that you've, you've accomplished over these last few weeks, if nothing else, is to have access to some basic questions that you can ask yourself as you're reading through, and you can apply those to your own study and get more and more out of your own personal study of scripture, because that is the greatest tool he's given us to grow. Today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4. We may, uh, we do, okay, so version is available. We're having some projection issues this morning. If you'll bear with us, our, some of our projectors are going a little bit crazy. If you want to follow on version, my notes are on there. version is a great tool for your own personal study, but it's also a place where we put our, our sermon notes that you can actually save to your account, and you can go back and you can see those anytime that you would like to do that. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 10 through the end of the chapter, through verse 23. Now, we have our six basic questions. So what's the first question? Who wrote it? Who wrote this book that we're reading? Who is responsible? What, and that's important to us because we find out where they're coming from, what they've been through, why they're writing, which is an important question. The second one is, who is Paul saying it to? Who's he writing this letter to? Or who is the author of whatever book you're reading? Who is this aimed at? It's important to understand who is being written to, because this helps us understand the context of the conversation. Just imagine that you have a conversation with one friend, you take that out of context, and you send it in a text to another friend, you have no idea what they're going to take from that. 
So instead, we find out, well, who's he talking to? Why is that important? What's their relationship? Then we get into more of the questions that really get into the meat of the study. And a lot of times, once you've answered those first two questions for a book, you don't necessarily have to go back and answer them again. You will maybe refresh yourself, but you'll remember those things. Then we get into what is being said. Why is it being said? That helps us understand the context. Why is it being said? And then what does that mean to us? What is the transferable principle? And once we know what that transferable principle is, that thing that they were trying to communicate to this group of people, how do we gain that, glean that from that study? And then how do we apply it? Because ultimately, the life of following Christ means following his word. And if we don't apply what we study, then it has no power in our lives and we have no ability to truly follow Christ. I want to add one more, not a question, but I want to, I want to add an environment, so to speak, as you are doing your own study. And it is simply this. As you read through Scripture, it can be very easy to go through the nuts and bolts of getting the words off the page. You also can use these questions and get principles off the page, but it becomes very academic once you've done it for a while. So I would encourage you, as you are in your own personal study, that you will always gain more if you will approach it in an attitude of prayer and meditation. Now, I don't mean meditation in get the smelling salts out and, you know, breathe the right way. And I, if you do that, that's perfectly fine. But what I'm saying is meditate on these things and approach it from a perspective of prayer because it is in that environment that the Holy Spirit is most able to speak to you. So I encourage you to continue with these six questions, but also to approach with prayer and meditation. And as these begin to take on more meaning, you'll find that you'll do that automatically anyways. You'll get excited about what you're taking from it. All right, let's talk about this last, these last few verses together this morning. Our next basic question after who is Paul saying this to is, well, what is Paul saying? What's the best way to find out what is being said? Read it. That's right. It's very easy. If we want to know what is being said, we just have to read it. So I'm actually just, we're just going to read through verse 20. We're going to cover those last three verses a little bit later. Those are a closing, you know, comments that are common in every letter. And so we'll talk about those in a minute. But for now, we're just going to read through the verses 10 through 20. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Now, let's remember what we've studied so far. Where is Paul right now? He's in prison. We don't know exactly what that looks like. He was likely under house arrest at this point. He had some freedom. He had a lot of guards coming in and out. He had a lot of freedom to not only talk to people, but also to write letters and send them out. But yet he was still in prison because of his faith. And he was uncertain how that was going to end because up to this point, he's been unable to get a hearing to be able to have his charges addressed. And so he's communicating again to the church at Philippi because they have reached out to him and they have cared for his needs while he's been in prison. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's a chunk of scripture. And if we simply have read this and then we close our Bibles and we go about our day, what we will end up doing is leaving with maybe a thought that stood out to us or maybe a little bit of content that you thought was important. But for the most part, we close our Bibles, walk away, and we're already thinking about the next thing that's going on in life. It's important that we don't just look at what is being said, but a more important question for you and I is why is this being said? We go deeper into understanding what is the text saying, which means you have to set some time aside whenever you're doing your own personal study. Maybe you want to have some time where you're just reading and that's fine. But for study, you need to set some time aside that you can go through these verse by verse. And so that's what we're going to do. Again, starting with verse 10, let's look at just a section of what Paul's saying. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I may be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this is what many of you may say is your favorite verse in Scripture. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this is one of the more well-known sections of Philippians. And as we read through this, Paul is revealing to us a little bit about the situation and what's happening. A a really great tool, which we've not exercised uh, here on Sunday mornings, is actually before you get into studying any particular part of a book is literally read the whole thing. Because many times you will find, especially in letters, information at the end that will help you understand the beginning. And at the end, what we see is Paul saying, I am thankful for you, the church at Philippi, because you have taken care of me. Now, it's interesting what he says. He says it's that you have revived your concern for me. And he says it's not because you stopped. It's not because you didn't care anymore, but you just didn't have the opportunity to help. But now you have the opportunity and you have done it. And even more importantly, what we find and We sometimes struggle thinking that all the Christians back in that first century were perfect Christians. As we find that even though Paul planted so many different churches in this area, even churches that today we read letters he wrote to them, they were not helping him, only the church at Philippi was. And he was thankful for that. And he wanted to let them know how thankful he was for their help. However, and this is where I want us to focus our time today, Paul does not let them think that his happiness or his satisfaction or his, even his ability to live is based on their help. Their help is just that. It is helpful. But he communicates something that many of us struggle with in our own lives today. And it is simply this, that no matter what, he 
is content. Now, I would like for you just to think for a moment how content you are with your life. I don't mean how happy you are. I don't mean has everything worked out the way that you thought it would because I think if you have any years behind you at all, you know life doesn't work out the way you thought it would. But how content are you? Paul knew how to be content. Paul knew what it looked like to be content. And it was not about him being fulfilled in everything he wanted because contentment does not mean that you have everything you want. Content means that you're okay even when you don't have what you want. Now, how many of us are okay even when we don't have what we want? Now, of course, that depends on what it is you want, right? I mean, if I want a cheeseburger right now, I can probably be content for the next few minutes until I can go get one. But if I want a person I care about to be healed from a sickness that's taking their life, it's a little harder to be content in that situation, isn't it? So contentment is not just about us getting what we want, but it's to, in a degree, in a sense, it's how do we accept as sufficient what I don't yet have? Think about that. How do I accept as sufficient what I don't yet have? Paul easily could have expanded his ministry farther had he been able to be out to roam about and to talk to different groups and go to different places. That's what Paul did. He was a missionary. He liked to go to where people were. He didn't stay in a place and have people come to him. Although when that happened, people came to him because he was constantly reaching out wherever he could. But Paul could easily have done more if he went out. And yet what we read earlier on in this letter is, look at what God is doing because of my imprisonment while I'm stuck here. God teaches us how to be content. I think one of the things we struggle with in, in our, our culture here is we struggle because contentment is literally determined by what is most important to us. We don't view contentment as satisfaction even if I don't have everything I want. We view contentment based on do I have everything I want. And the problem is we live in a nation in which we can have very much there's always something just out of reach and so contentment is determined by what is most important to you because we know you can't have everything now also within our context that you and i live we live in a great nation but in this nation we are very focused on success we are very focused and driven to get more to have more And so a lot of times when we prioritize, we prioritize on the things we don't have. And when we prioritize on the things we don't have, we will never truly be content. Now, sometimes as Christians, we kind of mess this up in our own theology and the way we share the gospel with others. Sometimes something goes well and we say, God has blessed us. You ever ever heard that? We're just so thankful for God's blessing on us. You know, it's often easy To say that when we have a child, and a child is certainly a blessing, but when you're in a room and a person says, God has blessed us with a child, we think, well, that's no big deal until you see that someone sitting next to them who can't get pregnant hears that. Does that mean God has not blessed me? Has God cursed me because I don't have that? And that's 
painful and emotional, and some in this room may have struggled with that in their life. But what if it's not something that emotional? What about when we get a new house? We say, God's blessed us. He is just blessing us. And you have a nice house. But what about the person sitting next to you that's struggling to make their one-bedroom efficiency payment every month? Is God not blessing them? We also do this just in our relationships. I'm just so blessed because I got a promotion at work. But what about all those people who are faithfully following Christ and their job is not offering them anything? Are they not blessed? See, it's important that Paul, when he talks about this, he's not talking about you get everything you want and when God is working and here active in your faith, then all of a sudden you're just going to be happy with everything. That is never the way that God works. Instead, he works in contentment. The kind of contentment that says, you know what, I don't have the house I want, but I'm okay. You know what, our family does not look like the way I want it to look, but it's okay. I sometimes... We'll read about these huge churches and they talk about how God has blessed them and their church is huge. And then all these smaller churches like us, we go, well, maybe God's just not blessing us. That's not the way God works. But that's the way our nation works. That's the way our nation works. And here is what happens. When we put as ultimate priority the desire for comfort and pleasure... Which, if we're honest, most of us at some point, if not right now, those are the priorities in our lives. Comfort and pleasure. When we put those as ultimate goals that will filter into the church, that we will see God's blessing when it, when it shows itself as comfortable and as pleasurable. That's why sometimes when we come to worship, we think, does the music speak to me in the way that I want it to? Do I feel good about worship this morning? And yet worship in and of itself is not meant for us. It's meant as a gift that we give to our, our God, our Savior, our Lord. We, we give that to him. So the question of was worship enjoyable is a question that God himself should answer, not us. But because we seek pleasure and comfort, we evaluate all of our circumstances based on the pleasure or comfort that it brings us. And so we gravitate towards those things that are more pleasurable. Eventually, what you will determine is that the pursuit of your life and the priorities that you place on your life, if those are your priorities, you will determine that anything that costs you is to be avoided. You will determine that if it does not end in some pleasure, then it should be avoided. Now, a great way to look at theology is to address whatever your belief is and take it out as far as you can to its logical conclusion. If something is going to be true, it will be true all the way to its logical end. Now, what ends up happening when we live in a society and that we pursue pleasure and comfort so much is that we begin to shun that which is not pleasurable. We begin to push away that which is not comfortable, which is why so many of us, we only travel between our jobs and our homes and the places we like to be entertained. And we avoid all those other places that are uncomfortable. It's why we often involve in our closest circles those people that bring joy to our lives and yet those people who are a drain, and you know who those people are, those people who are a drain, we just keep them at arm's length because they're not comfortable nor pleasurable. Eventually what begins to happen in a society that values comfort and pleasure over everything else is they will begin to choose to eliminate those things from public life. 
For example, if you're about to have a baby and it's going to be uncomfortable or unpleasurable, abort the baby. Because our comfort and pleasure is what's most important. If you're getting older and you're no longer able to function in society and you become a drain on the resources of the younger generations, why don't we just help them ease on into the next life so they won't be a drain on ours? And yet, if you watch any ethical dilemmas going on in our nation, that is a growing ethical dilemma. What about those children who are yet to be born and yet we have tests to tell us that they are going to have special needs if that baby is carried to term and those, those parents are going to have to care for that child for the rest of their lives? Wouldn't it just be easy not to have that child? And yet that is the counsel of thousands of physicians across our country today. Because we're seeking pleasure and comfort. And yet God has never said the way I'm going to work and the way you'll know that I'm at work in your life is if you are feeling comfortable. In fact, what he says is if you're feeling comfortable, you're probably in trouble because if I'm at work, you're not going to be comfortable. What Paul is saying is I have learned to be content in spite of all of the things going on in my life. Now, how many of us would pay for that kind of contentment right now? If I just wish I was content with my life. I just wish that I was okay with everything. That way, these hungers for these things that I know are out of reach, they wouldn't keep plaguing me. Paul knew. If we go back and we think about what did Paul say? Remember when we showed all the clips from the Olympics? Paul said there is one prize, and we need to give everything we have for that one prize. Do you remember what that one prize was? What was it, somebody? I know when they ask you a question, you freeze up, right? I don't know. I knew it, but now I don't know it. His one prize was to know Christ and to become like him. He said, I battle on, I fight, I train, I am focused on the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ, which is to know him and to become like him. See, Paul knew that his relationship with Christ was the greatest prize, and it was the reason that his joy was in that relationship, not in his circumstances, because that relationship with Jesus Christ can never be taken away from us. If we get sick, Jesus is still there. If he heals us, he's still there. If he doesn't heal us, he's still there. If we lose our jobs, Jesus is still there. If we lose our families in a terrible tragedy, Jesus is still there. If I never get the life I hoped for when I was five years old, you know, I had my own personal Disneyland in my backyard. Every kid wants that. But if I never have my own personal Disneyland at the rate I'm going, I don't think it's going to happen. But even then, Jesus is still there. Not only is he still there when this is all over. I get that for eternity. Paul knew that. His prize, his priority, his hope, and therefore his contentment was in the fact that he wasn't seeking comfort and pleasure. He was seeking Christ, and Christ was there. Christ would always be there. He knew how to do this. Paul also knew that your contentment doesn't require a lack of desire. Wouldn't it be easy if I just didn't want the things I wasn't supposed to have? Wouldn't that be nice? 
If I didn't see that guy drive by in that brand new car and think, man, that's nicer than my car. I'd like to have that. Wouldn't that be nice if you just didn't have those desires? What if you were absolutely happy with your home and your wardrobe and how you looked in your wardrobe, right? What if you were absolutely happy with that? Content, maybe. Maybe not happy, but content. See, it would be great if we never had desires outside of what God wanted for us. But by nature, the very people who we are because of sin within our lives, we have all kinds of desires, right? I have all kinds of desires. I'm never going to realize. I still would love to be a jet fighter pilot. I wanted to do that when I was a kid. You know why? Because I grew up watching Top Gun. Anybody else? I wanted to be, I didn't now, I mean, I, I wanted to be the one that lived, but I wanted to be, I wanted to fly a plane. That, that day's gone. <laughs> that time has sailed. Sometimes I'll tell Deidre, you know, I think, you know what I'd like to do when I grow up? Last week she told me to stop saying that, but I, you know, I think about those things. This is what I'd really like to do with my life. Paul's not saying he did not have a desire for anything. He's not saying you reach a level of faithfulness or a level of maturity or a level of holiness in which all of a sudden the only things you ever want are the things of God. Because quite honestly, I don't know anybody like that. And we don't find anybody in Scripture that meets that other than Jesus. Now, he tells us that's what we should strive for. But we can't find anybody that was ever actually able to do that. Contentment is not the fact that you don't desire other things. Again, contentment is the fact that you're okay, you're satisfied, even in the midst of desire. Paul's not saying, you know what, when I was poor, I loved it. It was great. Life was good. It was just as good, if not better, than when life I had plenty. He's not saying that. He's saying that regardless of what I had, I was content. I was satisfied. It's being at peace with who you are. It's being at peace in your life with Christ. It's not about being at peace with all your desires. And the desires that you and I have grown up in, the desires that we hear on the radio, the desires that are force-fed us on TV and in the magazines that we read is a desire for whatever it is you don't have. Whereas Jesus consistently says, you have everything you could ever need if you don't ever get anything else. Competing messages that you and I get in everything that we do. Contentment is being at peace with your life in Christ. One of the reasons that there are so many people, so many Christians that are not content is quite honestly, there are many people who label themselves as Christians. We hear, I hear on the news all the time, the number of people who identify as Christians is dropping. But here's the good news. God doesn't use their poll. God has his own book of life. And he doesn't look at what people says, I identify as a Christian. What he looks at is, do you know me? Do you know me? Because you can identify with whatever you want. It doesn't make you that. Do you know me? And there are many people that identify as Christians who have never bent a knee before Christ. They have never felt a need for a Savior. But yet God has fit in to our national obsession with ourselves i follow god because i think he can do stuff for me we have so many people we have whole theological movements based around what god can do for us 
When in reality, what God did for us was give his son on a cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins and we could be with him forever. That is what God gave us. When we lived in Fort Worth, there was a very large church and you would know the church and you would know the pastor if you know anything about churches that was in the area. Deidre was a a teacher at the time. She was a high school teacher and all the clubs, as they do today, needed a teacher sponsor for them to exist. And so there was a, a, a Bible study club and they asked her if she would be the sponsor for it, which just meant you had to show up there. It had to be a teacher in the room when they, these clubs met. And so she did. And these, this club was almost exclusively made of the youth group from this church. And so during prayer time, which was a large part of their time, there were prayers for cars. There were prayers for houses. There were prayers for healing. There were prayers that they would ace their exams that they didn't study for. And I'm telling you, that is the American way that has infiltrated the church. That is not who God is. That if I'm good enough and I'm faithful enough, God, I really want a better car. I tell you what, I'm going to put an extra five in the offering today. Could you get me that car this week? That's funny, isn't it? But there are literally people living their lives this way. This is a real way of life. We're not just talking about a few deranged people. We're talking about tens of thousands of people are in services right now around America praying for these things. See, when that infiltrates our faith, then contentment is impossible. The only way it can possibly be content is if the priority that we say is this is the most valuable thing in life has to overcome the need for pleasure and comfort. For Paul, it was knowing Christ. Philippians 4.14, let's keep going. I spent too much time there. All right, I got some more for you, too. <laughs> Philippians 4, 14, let's go on. Now, and the reason, and he follows up with this, and I want to say this before we get, go into this. The reason I think that Paul follows up with what we're about to read is because he recognizes that just because you've chosen to be content in a Savior and you're not going to pursue everything that's out there doesn't mean that you're going to live a life without problems. How many times have we shared the gospel in the sense of, you know what, if you will just give your life to Christ, then you will have no more problems in life. And that lasts until about lunchtime, right? And then you realize that wasn't true. That was not true. Paul realizes there are still times that we may be content with the fact of who we are in Christ, but yet we still have need, and therefore we still need each other. He goes on and says this immediately after, because somebody in the church would have said, you know what, Paul's good, why are we sending him help? He just said he's content in everything. He doesn't need anything. He's fine. Let's just let's hang out here. Let's just do our thing here. Bring Epaphroditus back. We're all good. He's good. We don't, let's just not help him anymore. Paul knew he better ad- address what he just said. He says, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica. 
You sent me help there. Now, the church in Thessalonica was an important church that Paul planted. And even they, we still read the book, the letters to the Thessalonians. And they were not helping. They weren't in any way trying to support his ministry as the gospel went out. And he goes on and he says, verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but this is important. I seek the fruit. That increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The truth about being content, while all of us would probably give something significant in order to truly feel content, the truth is that being content does not mean we don't still have needs. You know what I would love to do is to sit here and uh, sing songs and talk about the Bible 24-7. But if that happens, we're all losing our homes, right? We still got to go to work. We still need a paycheck. We've still got bills that are coming. We still like to eat. And there's not many places around here that will just give you food for nothing. Just because you're content doesn't mean you don't still have needs. And this is where we see, and this is what Paul talks about so much. And we're going to be talking about this in the coming weeks. But he talks so much about community because God created a community of followers to help take care of each other's needs. There are times that we have to look around the room and say, they need help. I can help. There are times we look around the room and we see they are struggling. They need somebody to encourage them. There are times when we look around the room and while we're tempted to go, how, how did he get another raise? When am I going to get a raise? Instead of doing that, we celebrate with what is happening in their life. So a community of followers does not exist separate from each other. The community needs each other, and God has gifted each of us, not just for ourselves. This is such a crucial misunderstanding of the way we live our lives. God has not just gifted you to take care of yourself. God has gifted you to take care of yourself and others. And yet you will not find that message anywhere in our culture. Don't take care, let them take care of themselves. I don't deny that many of the things that we have earned, we have earned because of our hard work, yet we thank God that we are capable of hard work. We are brought into a community to share the load, to share encouragement, not only to help others when they're in need, because here's the beautiful thing. When you were in need, someone will be there to help you. We have the opportunity to do that as a community. We have the opportunity to reciprocate to others. Small groups, I really hope that if you haven't signed up for a small group, and we're really excited about how many of you are in small groups, if you haven't done that, we really want you to be in a small group because a small group is where we take what we do here and we make it more personal. Anyone who's been in small groups for a while knows that you get way more in small groups than you get on a Sunday morning. So we really encourage you to do that. And you're already saying, that's a great whatever, but I don't have time. Listen, none of us have time. None of us have time for it. But we choose it. And when we choose to spend that time, it enriches our life, it enriches our faith, and it enriches our community. Besides, what would we be doing with that time anyways? Watching TV? Trying to recover from all the other activities of the week? telling you it's crucial that we operate as a community 
And what we've also seen is even among the churches, I've already said this, very few offered to reciprocate Paul's care. But this is what he says. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit in verse 17. He's saying, it's not that I just want you to give to me. It's not that I'm just looking for a handout and I'm really excited when I get that check in the mail. He says, no, what I'm excited about is by your willingness to give, you are breaking the norms of the society and you are following the example of Christ. And I see that as an example of the fruit of your growing faith. That's what I'm excited for, even though it does help Paul's ministry. I'm excited that what God is doing in you and you are overcoming the need to hold on to 110% of your own stuff. And you see that God has gifted you to give to others. It's so incredible when we truly understand the concepts of following Christ that the things we make assumptions about in life are almost always wrong when it comes to God. Almost always wrong. We look at ways to receive. And he says, you will have the most when you give. I wrote a blog about that this week. If you hadn't read it, you can. I'm not going to repeat the blog. But in our Pursuit of contentment, we often find the very opposite of what we assumed to be true. At the end, after him sharing this, Paul then closes his letter. He, for the most part, has said what he wants to say. Verses 21 through 23 is just kind of a common closing. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, community. The brothers who are with me greet you. Those who had come and are still following him there where he is. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So what is the transferable principle here? I'm going to give you two. Then I want to show you a little bit about how to apply it. But again, these are the sections that as you follow Christ, as you do your own deeper study, this becomes richer and more personalized to you because that's the way the Holy Spirit speaks to you through his word. But here are a couple of transferable principles I think we can easily take from what we've just read. Number one, our satisfaction must be in our relationship with Christ instead of our circumstances. Our satisfaction has to be in Christ because our circumstances change most of the time on a daily basis. The second one is this, that we demonstrate our, our faith by caring for each other. That is not just something we're supposed to do. It is actually the fruit of a growing faith. We trust in God. When we trust more in God, we don't feel like we have to take care of just ourselves. We do have more to offer to others. Those are two crucial transferable principles. But I want to focus on the first, on how do we apply this to our lives today. Our satisfaction must be in our relationship with Christ instead of our circumstances, which is easy to say, not easy to do. So I've got a few ideas for you to think through and embrace yourselves. The way we're going to do this is we're going to take that straight from what Paul said. If we go back to verse 12 of chapter 4, it says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Number one, how do we apply this? Develop a grateful heart. Develop a grateful heart. How do we develop a grateful heart? We're thankful for what we have. How do we become thankful for what we have? We recognize the abundance that we live with every single day. We're grateful. See, when we have never, ever accepted or taken on a grateful spirit, 
then we will never have enough. You know, I really wish my car was nicer than what it is. Until you need a car. Then you're happy with your car. I really wish my job was more enjoyable than it is. Until you need a job and you don't have one. Right? we grateful for the things that we have. Developing a grateful heart is some of the most difficult things to do in our lives because we live in a, in, in a world of excess, blaring at you at the top of its lungs. You don't have enough. God says you have everything you need. One of the ways you can do that is simply this. This is a good exercise for all of us. Sometimes it's an exercise that, that Deidre has to tell me to exercise. She tells me, go do this. Go to your room and do this. She didn't really say that, but she means it. Recognize the positive things that are in your life. Just stop and recognize them. Name them. Write them down. Speak them. Thank God for those things. The more that you see, the more that you will recognize what God has given you. Second thing is this. Keep your circumstances in perspective. Understanding this one truth that we forget every time That what you are going through in a moment is a season. But that season will change. Now, it may mean that you need to make some steps to go ahead and usher in the new season. Maybe you do really have a terrible job and you can't pay your basic bills. And maybe you need to go get an education. Maybe you need to go get additional training. Maybe you just need to step out in faith and you need to put some resumes out there to see what other options are available. There there may be some steps you can take, but overall, understand that what you're going through is a season. It's not going to be this way forever. And ultimately, when all this is over, we'll be in heaven with Christ. How do all the things that you're seeking after right now, all the things that are crying out to you that you don't have enough, how do they compare to eternity? As a follower of Christ, it is, I, it is sometimes difficult for me to get past my death date. I'm so focused on between right now and when I die. And I forget to think about what's coming later. Keep your circumstances in perspective. It's probably not as bad as you think. You have every opportunity for something better coming. Third thing is this, and this is tough for all of us, but it's develop a discipline of moderation. Being content means that we have to moderate things within our lives. We are not good with moderation. Just enough, just enough. If we can begin to moderate our lives, we will find we are more satisfied in the smaller amounts of what we have than trying to get bigger and bigger portions. Develop a discipline of moderation. Truth is, is no matter how much you have, you will always want more. The people that can teach us the most about this are the people that have the most. They will literally stand up and say, there's no satisfaction in having more. Just the hunger to get even more. Develop a discipline of moderation. That's what we read about from Paul in verse in verse 12 no matter what's going on he's learned to be content even if he doesn't have everything he wants he's learned to be content 
He knows that he has been given so much through Jesus Christ. He knows that this is a season he's going through. And if this season ends in death, which keep in mind, at this point, we know of at least two disciples who have already been killed for their faith. He's writing all this knowing that at least two of his good friends have already been killed. Number, uh, verse 13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the fourth way to apply this is to trust in God's grace and the goodness of his will. And I will tell you that is hard to trust in the goodness of God's will when he takes you through the very difficult places in life. We want to follow him when he leads us beside the quiet waters. But not when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. Trust in God's will. Trust that if you're struggling, maybe God wants you to struggle right now. Trust if life is not everything you hoped it would be. Maybe that's because God doesn't want you to have that life. Maybe that life ends somewhere where you can't even predict Trust in God's will and understand that he will move you in the place that is best. Trust in his grace and the goodness of his will. But that does require faith to believe that there is a life better than the picture-perfect life that is broadcast on every channel that we see. That there is a better life than that. Trust in God's grace and the goodness of his will. Verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes when I was a kid and we would read something like that, I would go, how's he going to do that? Have you ever wondered that? I can't pay for my electric bill this month, which says every Hamilton County resident. In existence right now, right? Our our air conditioning bills are through the roof. God, if you would just send a dub down with a stack of 20s, that would be excellent. Why don't you do that? The truth is, God doesn't do that. But he gives some of us stacks of 20s that we could share if we were willing. And someone was in need. Right? Right? Fifth thing, if we want to be content, is to look for opportunities to meet the needs of others. And I will tell you, this may be the biggest secret in developing gratitude in your life is looking for ways to help others. I remember when Deidre and I got married, I, we didn't, weren't thinking about anything else. You know, I, I asked her to marry me. She said, yes, that was a miracle in and of itself. So then all the planning started, right? We started doing all the scheduling, and then we had to start fighting about who were we going to invite. We didn't fight, but our, our parents did. No, they didn't really, but they kind of did. Well, we want our friends to come. We only have so many seats. Well, we want our friends to come. Anyways, anybody had that problem in their planning? Just us, okay. And guys, what's the big thing you've got to plan? The honeymoon. I mean, really, who's probably the worst qualified to plan a trip other than, you know, a college-age guy who, hey, man, let's just, we go watch a movie or something. That'll be fun. But planning the honeymoon, right? Play some video games. I got a new Xbox. We'll have a blast. That's how the wedding gets called off early, by the way. Planning the honeymoon. 
So I did all the research. I pulled together every penny I could. I saved every nickel I could save. And I, we planned this great trip down to Cancun because that was a place to go at the time. We couldn't really afford Cancun, but interestingly enough, you move out so far, really far from Cancun, it gets cheaper. So we did. We stayed in this, this resort. It was really beautiful. It was wonderful. But I got to tell you, it was ruined the very first day because we had to take a shuttle from the airport through some of the poorest neighborhoods in Mexico to get to our five-star all-included resort, all-inclusive resort. And so as we drove here, Deidre and I both just looked at each other, and we're, neither one of us were immune. We, we both had done missions around the world at that point. We had seen poverty. We had seen slums. We knew what it looked like. But we had not invested every penny we had to go be taken care of by people in a five-star resort that couldn't even afford to have electricity in their homes. Now, it didn't really ruin our trip. We weren't there as a missions trip. We still found ways to enjoy ourselves. However, it did change the way we saw the week. Can I tell you that if you don't ever spend any time helping someone in need, you will struggle to become a grateful person. But if you will give of yourself to help people who are genuinely hurting, that is the best way to be thankful for the life that you have. If we help people across the country, that's fantastic. If we help people across the world and we have some partnerships of people not just locally but around the world that we help in their ministries, that is fantastic. But nothing overcomes you handing a meal to a person who can't afford one. When we begin to look at somebody and their needs and the ways that we have been given over an abundance to help, that our gratefulness swells. It swells. When we're struggling and we're saying, God, I just, I can't be happy with my life right now. I can't be happy because I just don't have what my friends have. I don't have what my neighbors have. I don't, I'm looking at Facebook and I'm looking at these pictures where they're at right now. That's not where I am. Then all we can think of is what we don't have and the need and we want and the desire. And it becomes so overwhelming. It wants to take over our lives. But yet when we stop and we see someone who's in need and we help. All of a sudden we just don't need that much. Many of you have helped a friend of ours, Eugene. Eugene is a homeless man here in town. You'll see him walking around Hickson with a bedroll. He sometimes has a friend with him and sometimes he doesn't. He seems absolutely content to be living on the street. He loves He loves just sleeping out under the stars. And we see him and kids see him and they'll point him out when we see him. We'll stop, see if he needs something. It's hard for me to really want something more than I have when I see Eugene. <laughs> it's really hard to do that. I want to encourage you that we as a community, we are called to do that. Now, for some of you who are thinking, but I just, I don't have a lot of money to help. Here's the good news. There are all kinds of needs out there that don't require a check. Sometimes it's to walk beside somebody who's hurting. Sometimes it's to watch our words to make sure that we don't say something crazy like, we're so blessed to have this house. Maybe it's, that's care for someone else. 
Maybe it's giving to others when we look at them and we just need somebody needs to come along and notice they just did something huge in their lives that everyone else missed, but I didn't miss it. And I want you to know I'm proud of you for doing that. See, a lot of times within the church, we, we want the staff to take care of that. But the reality is a powerful church doesn't happen because of the staff. A powerful church happens because of the people. You see needs. Look at all these eyes. I have two. Look at all these eyes sitting out here. It's amazing what we can do when we understand that as a community, we are meant to give to others. Look. The opportunities to meet the needs of others. I'm telling you, it will change your entire perspective of your life. Finally, this is what I want to leave with you. How do we kind of glean one principle from this whole book? There's not one principle from this whole letter. But I want to to wrap up what I think is, if we were to try to get one overarching idea that everything else flows from, It would be this, and it all centers around the concept of joy, not happiness, joy. Happiness, we all know it's a fleeting feeling. I'm happy as soon as they bring me my hamburger from Five Guys, and as soon as I finish eating it, I'm no longer happy for the next 18 hours. But I'm happy for a moment, right? Joy is not dependent on our circumstances nor on our feelings. Joy is found, we know that our prize is in Christ, And that we will be with him for an eternity. If we could embrace that. And I know that sounds so simplistic and preachery. If we could embrace that. I am telling you. All these other things would fall into place. They would fall into place. So I want to encourage you as we sing this last song. Let our worship not be something that we want to leave here with one last hurrah. That we feel good about to get us through our week. But when we worship, let us worship giving our hearts to the one who not only created us, but saved us from ourselves. A God who loves us even when we are the most ugly people on the face of the planet. And a God who gives us grace when you and I have not done a single thing to deserve it. Let us worship him and give him a gift of worship this morning. Father God, I thank you for your love and for your grace. I thank you that even in spite of all of our brokenness, all of our desires, the hungers that we think we just can't live without. You are all we truly need. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would look above this life that we have for just a few years on this earth, but instead we would see all of eternity that we get to have with you. Father, I pray for those in this room, and and they are truly struggling with real needs, not just a desire for a bigger this or a bigger that, but instead they are struggling at a very deep heart level and with great need in their lives, whether it's the need to be loved, whether it's the need to pay their bills, uh, or it's the need just to feel like they have purpose in this world. I know there are people in this room right now that are struggling with knowing that they have a place. Father, I pray that you would show them that not only is your grace enough to save them from their sin, but your grace is enough to save them from whatever circumstance that they're in. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the world and to see our lives with a big vision, not to just tune into the one season we're going through right now. And God, I pray that as we all can relate to what it feels like to feel hurt and pain, Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn that into something that can make a difference in the world so that it would open our eyes to the pain of others so that we can be there to support and encourage them.
I thank you for the example of Paul. I thank you for the example of the church in Philippi. And I pray that we, where we are right now in this place and in this world, Father, that we would be able to get the message of the gospel like they did. That we would be generous, not just with our finances, but we would be generous with our time. We'd be generous with our language. We would be generous in being inclusive of all people from all places. Father, I pray that you would help us, that we would be your people in this place so that more could know the incredible wonder and the incredible gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. Let us be conduits to show that to the rest of the world. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.